Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So good evening, everybody. I'm Gwyneth Llewellyn, and I'm here to welcome you. But before we begin the proceedings, I would certainly like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land upon which the University of Sydney is built, and that is the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. So welcome, and I'm very pleased that you could be here tonight. Now, I'd like to just give you very briefly an overview of how the evening will run. We have Professor Tom Shakespeare, who will be speaking first. We have Sue Salthouse, who will be speaking second. And we have Professor Jared Goggin, who is going to keep them organised and you organised with questions and answers. Over to you, Jared. Um, so we, in, in the sort of brevity being, I suppose, the, the thing we're aiming for tonight in terms of the introductions, you'll forgive me if I don't do lengthy introductions to our distinguished speakers. We're extremely fortunate tonight to have both of these wonderful speakers um, to, to introduce and to talk about this topic. Uh, first up, we have Professor Tom Shakespeare, who's a Professor of Disability Research at the University of East Anglia, and he's also an Honorary Professor at the University of Sydney. And then we have Sue Salthouse, who's the Convener of Women with Disabilities, ACT, and has been ACT Citizen of the Year, uh, amongst many other Things. So, without further ado, Tom, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, it has been a great pleasure to come from a country which is very hot and excellent at sporting achievement <laughs> to Australia. <laughs> um, let me give you a bit of the context. Um, as we know, um, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, disabled people, people with disabilities, um, have been denied many, many choices. Choices that other people take for granted. Choices such as where to live, who to live with, who to marry, who not to marry, who to be partnered with. Um, they haven't had, we haven't had, the same participation in society as other people take for granted. And that's largely because disabled people have lived under the uh, control, paternalistic control, of um, families, uh, residential institutions, uh, charitable services. It's not to say always that these were bad, often they were very supportive and progressive, but they have, to a greater or lesser extent, denied disabled people choice. And as a result, both of those living situations, but also, as we know, the design of wider society, the barriers that are put in people's way, the physical barriers, the communication information barriers, the social barriers, as well as the lack of services which could empower people and enable them to participate. Disabled people have been um, unequal, have been unable to participate equally in society. And with the growth of the disability movement from the 1970s onwards, this began to change. And really at the heart and the beginning of the disability movement, certainly in the UK, but also in Berkeley, California, was the idea that disabled people could participate, could lead better lives, didn't have to live in institutions. 
And so we have this idea of independent living, the big idea of the disability rights movement. And one of the key parts of that, one of them I've already said, that the needs of disabled people are exactly the same as the needs of everybody else. But the other key part of that for me is to make a distinction between physical dependence and social dependence. So, for example, you could imagine a group of people who um, live separately from everybody else, who went to special schools, who took special transport, um, who uh, had to be looked after, really, uh, hand and foot, uh, who didn't carry money or anything else. Um, and you'd pretty much be describing a British royal family. <laughs> and I know that coming to Republican Australia, I can say that in a way that it wouldn't be popular in Britain. Um, because the distinction between physical dependence and social independence is that it doesn't mean that you have to be able to do everything for yourself. You have to be able to control how things are done. That's the key. It's not being sort of some Robinson Crusoe on a desert island, and he got everything done by Man Friday, as we know. But it's not being able to do everything. It's being able to have a say, to be heard, in how things are done. Very, very important. Um, it's about having choices and rights in your daily life. And that's what the heart of the independent living movement is about. And of course that varies. Different cultures have different uh, approaches. Um, families are much more important in some cultures than they are in the sort of um, Anglo-Saxon culture, for example. It's true that for indigenous people uh, in, in Australia or New Zealand or wherever else it might be, then family or community has a different relation. So I'm not trying to sort of impose on every other culture that white Anglo-Saxon culture. It does take a different form. But that fundamental principle that you are heard, that you have uh, the control over your life that's uh, appropriate, that everybody else does, really, really important issue. And I think that we have to be respectful of difference, but also we can't just assume difference. We want to hear from people themselves what's appropriate for them. So I think that uh, I know very little about the NDIS and the NDIA. I'm going to put my cards on the table. Um, I was here when the uh, report of the Productivity Commission came out, and I could see how exciting and important this development was. I can see that the, uh, there's been a huge step forward. That's really important uh, for disabled Australians. Um, and when I look at the Act, um, enabling objects of the Act, object C, enable people with disability to exercise choice and control. General principle four, supported to exercise choice. Um, general principle eight, be able to determine their own best interests, including the right to exercise choice and control to engage in equal partners. Uh, principle nine, um, it should be supported by the agency so their capacity to exercise choice and control is maximized. So I see these words over and over again through the act, which encourages me and makes me feel that this is coming from the right place. This is what we want. And then I look at the Convention on the Rights uh, of uh, Persons with Disabilities, and I welcome uh, the Australian member of that committee, and it's such a great thing. Uh, a, a really good step forward for Australia and for the committee. Um, and Article 19 
State parties to the present convention recognize the equal right of all persons with disabilities to live in the community with choices equal to others and shall take effective and appropriate measures to ensure that A, persons with disabilities have the opportunity to choose their place of residence, where and with whom they live on an equal basis with others and they're not obliged to live in a particular living arrangement. And so it goes on. So the legislation, the NDIS, um, the Act, the Convention, are all going in the same direction about disabled people living in the community, having control, and this is what we want for everybody. This is independent living principles that goes back to the 1960s. And what does choice and control need? What does it depend on? Because it doesn't just come from the air. It requires change. It requires respect and dignity. I was talking today with uh, the, the colleagues uh, in this university, Gwyneth's colleagues, about how you teach doctors, nurses, uh, therapists, all of the other professions to regard disabled people, persons with disabilities, with respect and to uphold their dignity. That's at the core of what we're fighting for. And it's difficult. And it's difficult in particular because the direction of travel, of training, is away from that. The right people come into the profession, I'm not criticizing that. But because we, in this world, we sort of break things down into symptoms and problems and things like that, we end up not seeing the whole person, but seeing the problem. And that undermines the respect we have for what is another human being. Um, so, respect and dignity. Being listened to is central to that. People, you are respecting me by listening to me. If you shut me up, you would be disrespecting me. So it's central. Um, it requires transfer of power. This is about power. Somebody is going to lose power. And that's difficult. And it's transfer of power from the state, from the charity, from the parent, from the professional, from the business, to us, the consumer, the citizen, the disabled person, person with disability. It requires a menu of different options. It's not choice and control if there are not different options from which I can choose. It could be otherwise. I could choose something else. And those have to be available. You have to have a community which includes these options. I mean, it goes without saying. I may live in Norwich. And as part of my contract with the local authority, I want to go and see Collingwood play every week. <laughs> and that would be great. But it's not possible in Norwich. So it's not on the agenda, it's not, it's not an option. You can go and see Norwich City play, I don't know why you'd want to, but you could. Um, and you need, and you might, I'm not listening to that. Um, I bear it for the pies. Um, so yeah, you've got to have the availability and the, and the, and the community supports. Um, and for some people, you need to be supported to make those choices. 
we have this sort of individualist assumption that I can choose to watch, to support this team or that team. But under Article 12 of the CRPD, equal recognition before the law, states parties shall take appropriate measures to require, provide access by persons with disabilities to the support they may require in exercising their legal capacity. Not everybody can decide like that. Some people require advocacy, support, different measures to enable them to express their will and preference. So we can't just assume it's an individual model of choice. And we need uh, safeguarding, we need to avoid the danger of exploitation and abuse. And that didn't start with the NDIS, that's been there since the year dot. People have been abused and uh, sexual violence and other forms of violence, neglect, exploitation have been there since the start. And as we roll out NDIA, NDIS, we need to be aware of that, attentive to that, and give uh, appropriate supports to ensure that doesn't happen. I want to say a little bit before I finish about personal assistance. Um, because uh, for me and for the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and for many disability rights activists through the world in, in developed countries, and last time I looked, Australia was a developed country, then being able to employ your own personal assistance is key to independent living. And why? Because you're no longer getting who was sent by the charity or the agency or whoever else, the local authority. You're getting people you chose to support you in your house or to support your family member in their house. Um, you can control who comes, how they work, what they do. You know, that's what we hope for. Nothing more than that. That's great. Um, and I think that what that requires is that your needs are, are assessed by a planner or who says, right, that's that's valid use of your budget. That is a need. And, um, and looking at the full range of needs. Not just to get up in the morning, but to participate in society. Because disabled people, persons with disabilities, have the right to participate in society. They have the right to go to the football. They have the right to go to work. They have the right to go to the pub. They even have the right to see the Adelaide Crows. If that's what they <laughs> want to do, that's what they can do. I'm not going to say no. They have the right to do those things. That's their choice. And even if we think it's incomprehensible, we support those choices. Um, and I think that we need to think of those full range of needs that people have. And uh, I just want to say one word. You know, you might say, well, that's all very well, Tom, for people like you who know the rules of football and all the rest of it. What about my friend Charlie, uh, who has intellectual disability? He can't do that. But he can. Because that's what happens to my friend Charlie. His mum sorts out the system. And he has personal assistants that come in, and he lives independently in his own home, and he has a good life. He goes swimming when he wants to, he eats pizza when he wants to, well, not quite when he wants to, that would probably be 24-7. But uh, he gets to do the choices that he wants to make. He can go and see his friends when he wants to do it. So, and in Sweden, for example, there's the JAG system, J-A-G, where there are basically the disabled person, the personal assistants, and a broker 
to make sure that this is happening appropriately, effectively, without abuse. So there are, you know, in the world, there are models that work to ensure the quality of, of support that people need. So what are the barriers to this? I've got a couple more s things to say. Well, bureaucracy, process, complexity, budgets, receipts, claims, a portal that doesn't work most days of the week, the Australian love of a committee. All of those are barriers. And we could, I hope, do something about that. We can make the portal better. We can have fewer rules. Of course, it's public money. It has to be accounted for and the rest of it. But we have to have a light-touch system. We had a much more light-touch system in Britain than you appear to have in Australia. And there was no fraud. And in fact, it's the only part of social welfare that gave money back. Because people spent less than was expected. Yeah? So, this is a, 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 a better model. Um, rules and procedures which say you can do that but not that. You can have this bath but not that bath. You can go here but not there. You know, if it's really about choice and control, yeah, we set the parameters, of course. But within that, even if you don't like the choice, you should be able to support the choice. The role of the professional, that's, that could be an obstacle. In Britain, and in the disability rights movement, we have this idea professionals should be on tap, not on top. Professionals should be on tap, not on top. They're there to support us, to work with us, not to push us down. Um, it might be that you're not offering the people a full range of options. And I'm not making this stuff up. This is from an evaluation of the NDIS. If you don't offer people all that is available, then how can they exercise choice and control? They have to know what they could spend their money on. Um, rationing. That there isn't enough money. I mean, I'm told there is enough money, so that's good. But that is an issue in Britain because personal assistance has been rationed. It's been an issue in Sweden, issue in Netherlands. Because guess what? Disabled people turn out to have a better life than you think. And it costs a little bit more money to support them. Well, you know, we have to at least have a debate about that. There's the issue of rural areas and the issue of, I think you call it thin markets. And that is an issue. You know, uh, can we ensure people the same range of options? Probably not. But as long as there is a sufficient level, as long as they, they have choices, it's very difficult. We did research with personal assistance. And in Norfolk, which is not quite sort of northern New South Wales, but it's pretty rural by British standards, it was very difficult to recruit support workers. Now, one reason is because they have a sparsely, sparse population, and the other reason was they didn't spend enough blooming money. When I started, I was paralyzed 10 years ago, and I had personal assistance when I started, and we were paying then £10.40 an hour, and that was a good wage. People want to work for a good wage. And now, it's the minimum wage. So in 10 years, it's gone down from £10.40 an hour, to whatever it is, eight pounds an hour. So it's gone down. And of course, what do you get? With no disrespect to people who work on the checkout, you get people who work on checkouts. And they're not gonna have the commitment to the job that they did 10 years ago when they were paid the value of the job. Because it's a difficult, complicated, important job 
So we should pay for that. And if we did pay for that, I think recruitment would be easier in rural areas. And there's also the issues of, of exploitation, the worries of exploitation. It could be by family. It could be by workers. This happens. Let's not be you know, naive about it. And that's why safeguarding and uh, uh, inspection is really important. We inspect uh, uh, old people's homes and, and care homes and the rest of it, at least in Britain we do, I assume you do here, we should do exactly the same. We should have some oversight of these things. Um, so uh, I've probably talked uh, too much. Have I got a few more minutes or am I okay? I'm okay for a few more minutes. Okay. So, um, so those are the barriers. Just let me highlight a couple of dangers. Um, uh, where is the collective voice of people? Is that structural advocacy funded? It's not about individuals all the time, it's about groups of people who need a voice in this process. It's about supporting infrastructure organizations, uh, advocacy coalitions, campaigning organizations, to represent the persons with disabilities, the older people who are receiving these services. We need to hear from them. I hope their voice is heard collectively. Um, uh, the worry we also have in Britain is that once you've had personalization, now if I'm doing a service for all of you, 50 or 100 people, and I cut it, you're up in arms. You're really upset. You're writing to the newspapers. You're mobilizing. You're doing something about it. And that's how it was in the old days. But now I've got 100 different care packages. And I squeeze yours, and I squeeze yours. Ah, you go, ah. But we don't hear you, because everybody else might be okay. So the danger with personalization, of which NDIS is a form, is that we lose the collective voice of people when we make individual contracts with all of them. And that's, again, why we need that, to keep that. Um, the workers, I told you about the, the, the hourly rate that's been squeezed. That's what's happened in Britain with personal assistance. That you've, uh, there's been cutbacks, there's been global financial crisis and all the rest of it. And the solution to that has been to squeeze the funding. And the, there have been disabled people who get fewer hours or they get excluded from the system. But their biggest victims have been workers. And who are the workers? They're 80% women. They're migrant workers, they're young people, and so we cannot have the liberation of disabled people on the back of the exploitation of other people. You don't sort out the system by hitting the workers. So we have to, you know, when we're thinking of the budget and the treasurer is thinking about where to get the money from, we don't get the money to go further by exploiting the workers more. I mean, that's, I hope, 101, basic. But that is how it's happened in the UK. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying it's straightforward. There are problems. Um, uh, but it is what most people want. They want to live in their own home. They want to participate. They want to connect. They don't want to be supported to be independent, separate, solitary folk. They want to be able to participate, to join with people, to go to the pub, to go to the footy, whatever sports you play in New South Wales. Um, they want to do what other people do with them. 
And I think the access workers, the metro access workers, the rural access workers you've had have done a great job. They've helped people join, connect, participate. So I hope that that does continue with this, this approach. Because I think fundamental to every human being is the desire for connection and relationship. And for disabled people to live properly in the community, independently, it's not to say they're on their own and solitary, it's to say they're connected and part of something. And that is the best way to protect them against exploitation and abuse. So, words like community, safety, continuity, having not a worker who leaves because she wants to get more money, reliability, people who turn up to work on time because they're respected and valued. Those are watchwords that we should remember in order to achieve choice and control. They're not separate, they're part of it. Safety, continuity, reliability. And what we want is in that independence, that community living on an equal basis to others. Not too much to ask. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jared. Um, and I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we, we meet tonight. But I also want to acknowledge the leadership of the First Peoples Disability Network of Australia because it's taken on such an important role in ensuring that the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is heard in a culturally appropriate way and culturally appropriate supports provided. And I also need to say that I'm speaking as an individual tonight and not as a representative of any organisation. So if we go back a tad to where this all started, I think we're pretty familiar, most of us, with like a mantra from the Productivity Commission that they used to describe the disability sector in 2011. They said that this was a system in Australia that was inequitable, underfunded, fragmented and inefficient, giving people with disability little choice. So let's move on to 2018. And this year, the Commonwealth Ombudsman report into um, plan reviews described the NDIS disability support system as unwieldy, unapproachable and the driver of, of substantial volumes of complaints. So it leads me to wonder where we've got to so far. I think we're a long way yet from the ideals of the scheme. And as um, Tom pointed out, it is beautifully expressed in the NDIS Act what we're aiming for, that people with disabilities has the same rights as other members of Australian society to be able to determine their be own best interests, including the right to exercise choice and control and to engage as equal partners in decisions that will affect their lives to the full extent of their capacity. It's the equal partnership we're missing. This is an echo of the CRPD, as people would know, but at present the NDIS is not fulfilling its stated principles and these objects of the NDIS Act itself or the tenets of the CRPD aren't yet being met. I think it's important for us also to focus on that slogan of the disability rights movement of the 80s and up to the present day, that nothing about us without us. 
And when I look at one of the omissions of the current operation of the scheme is to lose sight of the fact of the, this principle that this is a person-centred scheme. And at present, we're still being robbed of autonomy within the scheme. There's plenty of co-design going on, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of consultation to change a participant pathway. But when it comes to shaping my individual plan, I'm in the hands of a planner who may have very little experience of disability, very little experience of the intricacies of the Act or the rules or the guidelines, and a great deal of power to determine what's in the plan. So the purpose of tonight is for us to look in more detail at one of the other um, important principles and objects embedded in the Act, and that is that people with disabilities are to be supported to exercise choice and control in the pursuit of their goals and the planning and delivery of supports. So in this vein, it's really important that the Act also says supported to take reasonable risks and supported to be enabled to determine our, to determine our own best interests. So although in the Act, choice and control are presented as a single principle, in fact, I think they're very different. And I think that our job, our first job, is to decouple choice from control. To me, that seems really obvious because choices are not always available to us. Whether we're disabled or non-disabled, whether we're considering choosing an activity or the purchase of an object, in the current NDIS system, planners and the planning process grossly inhibit our ability to make the big choices and the choices available are severely limited. So, for starters, making choices is about decision making. And in the current setup, a high proportion of adults, of participants, are adults with congenital con cognitive impairment, the majority of whom have not had a wealth of experience in decision making, risk taking, or deciding what's in their own best interests. So, we don't, and, and in fact, when you look at the quarterly reports, 53% of participants are adults with cognitive impairment or autism. And 58%, um, so 53% of, of participants are adults, and 58% of participants are people with intellectual disability or autism. Now, they're not the same 50%, but, but that just gives you an idea. So... We don't yet have in place universal, well-developed mechanisms for um, enabling supported decision-making. Now, supported decision-making is one of the most active areas in, in Australia at the moment, whether for the NDIS or outside it. Equal recognition before the law and access to justice. So my big hope is that young people with cognitive impairment are going to bypass substitute decision-making and be much more practised in making choice and decisions about their lives. But how do we make those decisions? For the non-disabled, 
You non-disabled, you also set goals and most of the choices you make on big ticket items are based on your finances. Weighing up what's affordable, what's value for money, you can decide to defer a purchase this year in order to buy a decide ob de desired object next year. Of course, there's an emotional component in all of that. You might have a severe leather, leather fetish and that's going to limit your choices somewhat. Um, <coughs> But for the NDIS participant, the scheme doesn't yet enable individuals with disabilities to make their choices in the same way. A plan is not a reliable source of income. Money, money comes in bubbles in a plan. And that's a useful analogy because the bubble can be pricked by a planner and, and everything disappear at plan review. Or we may have installed assistive equipment whereupon our assessed need is reduced. Um, and at the, at the moment, there's no ability to bank funds for, say, a longer holiday without triggering a plan review. I do want to say that these, um, these shortcomings in the NDIS at the moment are are not set in concrete and they're under discussion. And in fact, I had a discussion with the NDIS by email this week and they're making logical steps in the right direction. However, it's established and understood at the moment that current uncertainties are there. So um, I don't want to go into more detail at the moment about uh, how this affects our decision making um, and 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 skews it completely. I do want to look briefly at housing because there's a feeling that the, the NDIA is de facto forcing people to make value for money choices about housing. Now Tom read out what Article 19 says about our right to live independently in the community and to choose with whom we live. But there's a hidden housing agenda at the moment and it's an elephant in the bedroom. And um, one of my friends is, is in this at the moment that, that um, suddenly their house dynamics has been thrown up in the air because funding's disappeared at plan review and because the supported independent living funding that affects the, um, the accommodation providers has also been slashed. So they're suddenly faced with either get, rent out the next bedroom, change the whole dynamics of the house or, or change providers. And that's what the NDIS has told them, but we can't say that that's what's told them because it's not on the agenda. Um, so I think that our choices are severely compromised at the moment. And if we move on to control, the CRPD enshrines respect for my, my inherent dignity, my individual in autonomy, including the freedom to make my own choices and my independence as a, per as a person. That's in the preamble, not even in the formal um, principles. So the implementation of our plan is in two parts. We need to have control over the drawdown or spending of funds. Now, for myself, I'm going to farm that out to a financial plan manager. But the second part is I want to have control over the service provider 
and my choice of activities. That, that is, I must be able to say what quality of controls I, of, of service provision I get and have some sort of choice about that. So service provision is actually an area which is ripe for development of the disability workforce in Australia. How many service provider organisations do we have which are run and governed by people with disabilities? Zero. I think that's it. How many service provider organisations have people with disabilities on their boards? Five? Who knows? How many service provider organisations have advisory committees of people with disabilities that they actually take any notice of? So I think that people with disabilities are still missing in leadership positions in the disability sector, let alone in the mainstream in Australia. Do you know that we have two politicians in Australia who have disclosed disabilities? Do you know how many politicians there are across all the jurisdictions? 800. We're missing. We don't have a voice. Now, the NDIS has also got a fixation on value for money. And that's what people with disabilities need and want as well. But there has to be a way of taking into account that there's a person at the centre of each decision. And that has to be balanced with the need to increase independence and participation. A young friend of mine is in her 30s. Um, she's a mother. She got Charcot-Marie-Tooth um, condition. And she was told by email that due to the degenerative nature of her condition, her request for bathroom modification was rejected. Now, the scheme preferred to fund a support worker to take her to the bathroom twice a day rather than renovate her bathroom and enable her to do it herself. Now, I must say that they went to a lot of trouble to have, um, have their daughter and they made sure through IVF that the daughter doesn't have Charcot-Marie-Tooth's condition. So she's got to mother that child for a long time. So when I look at that decision by the NDIS, I say, where was the person-centred aspects of this decision-making? So I think as well when we look at participation, the major part of the NDIS is predicated on our ability to change the mindset of the entire Australian um, population. So the, the Productivity Commission report was predicated on, on all Australians stepping up. So the National Disability Strategy from 2010 to 20, from 2020 has six objectives and they're aimed at doing that for the whole of Australia. The shared vision is for an inclusive Australian society that enables people with disability to fulfil their potential as equal citizens. We've got, we have signed up to seven human rights conventions in Australia. 
each one of them in their general principles, including the Universal, um, universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights, each one of them should address the inequalities that people with disabilities experience. But let's look at it. Education, half as likely to complete Year 12. Employment, half as likely to be employed. Poverty, two and a half times more likely to be in the lowest income quintile. Welfare, four times more likely to be in state housing. Health, no access to national screening programs. Violence, women are two to ten times more likely to be sexually assaulted. Access to the legal system, nearly 50% of the prison population of Australia are people with disabilities. Access to justice, nearly twice as many of the victims of crime are people with disabilities. Access to justice, unreliable witnesses, reduce access to the court system. Reproductive rights, we still have no uniform national legislation which prohibits the non-consensual sterilisation of women with disability in this country. Family, women are discouraged or stopped from having children. And I do have to say, women, 40% of the participants in the scheme are women. Do you know we're actually 55% of the severe and profound population? So these are all shameful figures and they reflect the structural ableism in our society. And yet we, we lack sufficient disabled leaders to change things. Most notably, our welfare support system punishes us for getting a job. If we earn more than 130 odd dollars per week, my disability support pension is going to be clawed back at 50 cents in every dollar. That's equivalent to an effective marginal tax rate of about 70%. So if I'm not disabled enough to be on the DSP, I'll be on Newstart which means I'm living on $39 a day with added costs of disability um, and um, have to look for five jobs a week and quite likely I'll very soon add psychosocial disability to my primary disability when the system focus is for me to live in penury. It's that structural ableism which allows the government to limit the number of people on the DSB by bumping up the number of people on Newstart. So I think engaging with mainstream society has to be um, a large part of the brief of our local area, um, local area LACs um, when the scheme's fully rolled out. At present, LACs are preoccupied with the rollout itself. Um, and I'm not going to go into um, the amount that's, that's diverted into, it, into uh, information linkages and capacity building. So I've digressed into comments, uh, the above comments, which are about our wider society because the NDIS is only part of a bigger whole. It is the most ambitious social reform of our time and I haven't given up hope yet 
but there are key elements that need to be addressed. One, put the person firmly into the centre. We have to be the drivers of our plans. Two, trust us to get value for money. Three, communicate with us. We want a partnership with an agency that is an enabler. Four, be transparent in revealing the reasons for your actions. Five, allow us flexibility in spending our money. And six, reward innovation. So I look forward to relaxing in an Auslan cafe that's run by deaf entrepreneurs, reading the financial review about a female quadriplegic who's a CEO at the helm of an ASX 200 company. Roll on the future and thank you. Hi, Anne Kavanagh. Thanks both for your fantastic talks and I could ask about 50 questions, really. But Sue, your conversation about choice and control and the planning process um, really struck me. Um, I think uh, this... So I'm talking about my own personal experience here, but one comment we had from a planner when we talked about that was... Um, Choice and control comes when you get the budget, but not in the planning process. Um, and I'd have to say that is really does reflect yeah. the experiences. So I think that comment, whilst bizarre, actually does reflect um, the experience. I and and, and I, I know you just talked about budgets, but I'm really keen to know what happened before those budgets were allocated. And the other thing that's very clear in Australia is the way you spend that budget is incredibly rigid. So you have yeah. very little capacity to move between different kinds of parts of your budget. And the saving issue is really important. You don't keep the money as you move over, so you can't plan ahead. Who, who goes on an overseas holiday without thinking two years ahead, but you can't, you know, there are all those kinds of things. So, but, so I could keep going on, <laughs> but the planning process strikes me as a really, really important part of trying to under-operationalise choice and control. No, I mean, in, in Britain, um, you know, the idea is that the social worker comes to see you and you discuss what you want to do and how you want to live your life. And it's true that what you ask for isn't necessarily what you get, but you, you know, they, uh, they were suggesting loads of things. They say, you know, do you like gardening? And I went, well, yeah, yeah, I like gardening. So would you like some help doing the gardening? I went, yeah, 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 please. Um, but what about going to the shops? Yeah, yeah, I'd like help going to the shops. What about shops that are further away where you'd have to make it? Yeah, yeah, I do that. You know. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, they basically doubled my package. I had 10 hours a week. They said, no, 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 you need 20 uh, to do all of these things. And um, that's what I got. Um, and I know it's more constrained now, but that principle is there. I mean, there is a formula which is a bit mysterious, but they come to you to discuss what you want to do. And I think that's how it all should be. Yeah, well, I think in principle that's, that's how it is as well. And I think what we've got to remember is that um, we know we've got a workforce which is just developing and that sometimes um, the 
the uh, assessment of, of, or my assessment of my situation, even if I get in an allied health professional to substantiate that, can be, can be ignored and overruled. Um, I had an example of um, somebody who, who was assessed to need a particular motorised wheelchair. There was only one on the market, it was 34 grand and that went um, into the planning process and it was all substantiated by, by allied health professionals whose input we love. Um, and, um, but when the plan came back, there was only half the money for, for, the, for, for a motorised wheelchair. So then it's not that it's not that that may... It's that that decision has to be substantiated. There has to be a reason. Um, and that, that if a person wants to make a co-payment then to bump that up to the original wheelchair, and that is possible in the scheme, but not many people are aware of it or, or, or know that they can do that. So I think that... Um, we're also in, in a phase at the moment where, where oftentimes because we're building a, work sh a workforce that the person who speaks to you actually doesn't have the understanding of the Act, the rules and the guidelines <coughs> and how they can move within them. Because the Act is a beautiful piece of writing and the Act encapsulates how you can put people at, at the centre of this scheme. But just my feeling is um, that it's not interpreted properly yet. Hi, um, I just wanted to make a few comments so you can comment back, I guess. So I'm actually, um, I'm now support coordinator for the NDIS um, for a service that works under the NDIS. And before that, I was a mental health case manager. Um, so I focus on the, so the psychosocial disability um, format. And I found initially that um, the whole process of the planning of the LAC meetings, I found that uh, many of the participants, and including myself as a worker, I supported a lot of our old clients to help them access the NDIS, and, um, and I found that they often didn't understand even what the meeting was about. We also, as workers, didn't understand what it was about. What are they planning for? What do the goals mean? So even to start off, it almost seemed like they didn't have that choice and control because they didn't know that they were being assessed and that would determine how much um, money they would get allocated for the, their goals or for wherever, whatever they wanted. So I think it's sort of, even from the get-go, it was sort of limited because they didn't know that that would determine their funding and what they did have available. Um, a second thing with that is I've found for many of my old participants that have transitioned and I'm working with them now in a different role, um, I found that it is sort of, it's quite limited. It's a lot of the things that they had asked for, they haven't received the funding for, and whether it's their choice to go in the review process or not, it sort of seems like, well, they do want to do this, but they haven't got any of the funding. So it actually limits them in a sense. I think it goes back to that we're developing this and, and that the NDIS, the agency, will try and do things that that encourage people to do more mainstream activities and that encourage people on the one hand to be more innovative mm. in what they do 
And I think that that can be very challenging mm. when people have been used to this way of operating and now, uh, and now there's a possibility to operate in that way which would be more mm. embedded in the community. But it's difficult to make that transition. Mm. And I think some of the things that I pointed out that are anom anomalies now are anomalies that we won't be dealing with in due course. Mm. But I think if your role as a support coordinator is to is to keep bearing that in mind mm. that this is this is a new way of operating. And I know uh, in the ACT where we've been fully rolled out for a year and a half, we had two years of preparatory meetings. There were so many meetings about how to be ready for the NDIS mm. and it's like teaching a toddler. Yes. People didn't take it in mm. until they were sitting in the room. Mm. So that's the phase we're in. And I just, um, just one more thing quickly. I, I have found since working, um, seeing that it's sort of a part business, it is business model as well, and I found that there are a lot of changes in the level of service, um, a little bit to what Tom was saying earlier, um, around that for some of the, um, the core supports or the uh, personal care, um, I found for some of the participants I've worked with, their feedback is that, and same with, um, I know people um, with physical disabilities as well who have said that the level of quality has reduced because they're getting people that aren't as skilled who will work for the money now and, and the core supports is such a low amount that even services, my, my job as a support coordinator is to refer to appropriate services. And I'm getting services now that are saying, well, no, we don't do that anymore because that's a too low paid yeah. item. So that's a real struggle and it's a bit of a disappointment, I find. Hello, I'm Janet Ma. And um, I wanted to mention that, Tom, I hated the examples you gave because it just shows us what an uphill battle we've got. And Sue, I hated your stats that you gave. Uh, you know, so many people with disabilities in the wrong places, not in politics, not in leadership positions. Um, very few of the leaders in the disability sector don't have grey hair. Yes. They might have decore hair, but, you know, where are the leaders coming through? Um, I am really, really concerned that we're a dying breed, sorry, <laughs> um, that we're not teaching people to have a contributing life and all those choices come out of the contributing life. We're not even got our own funded organisations employing people at all levels that have disabilities, that live with disability of all kinds and we're not employing them in the NDIS uh, as peer workers and mentors and people who can take people to a new level with that personal expertise. I only know of one organisation that's actually employing um, disability peer workers. They're actually parents who are now leading other parents in an early childhood education <laughs> program. Um, but, and in mental health, of course, that's a... a normal way of doing things these days. So if we're not doing peer work, the corollary is we don't get as far as leadership 
because we're not taking an interest. We're keeping people in their chairs or in their back rooms watching days of our lives. Um, so what's changed? And I want to know you. if we can change it. I think we need quotas in various organisations and we need a quota um, in politics because until we're where we can change the laws, uh, I think we'll be hobbled. Yeah. I mean, in, in Britain, disabled people's organisations are run by disabled people. Um, and, you know, we have the sector has been cut. That's undoubtedly the case. But, you know, I'm a trustee of Equal Lives, which is the disabled people's organisation for Norfolk. And we have, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever it is, half of our workers are disabled and our committee is entirely disabled and our um, director is disabled. Um, and that has been a principle for disabled people's organisations in Britain. Um, and, you know, I could name straight off a dozen or so that would follow that. And in fact, there's probably 50 to 100 in the UK that follow that. So you're right, those, and what we, I love it when disabled people leave those organisations, because usually they move to a job in the state sector or the private sector or whatever, where they've developed the skills with us and they move on to other jobs. And that's what we want. And you're right, you never get, you won't get the MPs unless you get the councillors. You won't get the councillors unless you've got people running their own organisations and all the rest of it. And I've done quite an increasing amount of work in Africa. And I loved it in Uganda, which has got disabled people everywhere from the village, the district, to parliament. They have reserved places. And when I interviewed successful disabled people and I said, if I come back in five years, where will you be? They said, I'll be an MP. In fact, one of them said, I will be president, um, which is, I feel, unlikely in Uganda. But at least they were going for <laughs> political office. And I think they had every chance of getting there. Hi, I'm Karen Fisher. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to move slightly away from NDIS and I, I was really pleased that both of you referred to the convention and uh, Sue to the National Disability Strategy um, because I, I think uh, choice and control for most people with disability isn't about having a package. Uh, it's about the other choices in their lives. And so can we get your reflections on what you think government could be doing to change those broader attitudes, particularly in business, uh, but also perhaps in the community? Yeah, I, th I think that, uh, that we just need we, need, we do need some targets to have, to have people, have places corralled for people with disabilities for a bit. I, don't th I think in Australia, I think Graham Innes has talked about, about targets for a long time. <laughs> And that, uh, as we see with with uh, the situation for women, that targets have achieved a lot in the Labor Party. The lack of targets has achieved a lot in the coalition. <laughs> um, and so that we need to strategically look at how we can foster people and to expect to go into positions uh, where they will be decision makers and particularly young people that, um, to a certain extent, uh, I'm involved in a young leadership program at the moment, and we're, we're being very careful to structure it, that these young people can pitch their passion 
in whatever field takes their interest. I don't want to see in the future that people with disabilities are just working in the disability sector. There are far too many of us, myself included, doing things in the disability sector. That's where we need that um, expectation that every committee will look for someone with disabilities to be on that committee. It's like equal employment opportunity that we've had proactive actions for a long time in other fields. We need them now for disability. We've got to be seen. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the commercial sector. I mean, I'm just thinking of two things. One is that if disabled people are poor and have no money to spend, they're not going to be of much interest to in the commercial sector. So the more that disabled people can participate, can have a reasonable standard of living, the more that they will be customers. But they still have family members who I hope are not always uh, impoverished. So I think sort of, you know, in Britain we talk about the purple pound, which is disabled people spending power. So, you know, the more that parents of disabled children and disabled people themselves and partners of disabled people can say, well, actually, you're not accessible and I'm not trading with you. Um, the better, and we should be articulating that um, uh, on, a, on a national scale. Um, and I think in Britain, uh, the Business Disability Forum, which used to be the Employers Forum on Disability, has worked very well with um, uh, the commercial sector, banks, big, big employers, getting them to e employ more disabled people. And the point is that, you know, the talent is in short supply, and uh, your, your country, as well as mine, is aging, which is great. People are living longer. But the number of productive people is shrinking, uh, certainly in Britain and to some extent in Australia. And so you can't afford to waste talent. And disabled people are very talented. You know, we've contributed so much to the world over the millennia that it would be very foolish to, to look aside now. And so I hope that things like the Business Disability Forum and things like leadership programs and all the rest of it will include disabled people and, and, and achieve a step change in their inclusion in leadership positions. I don't care whether they're in business, sport, the arts, politics, you know, the church. I don't care. The mosque. I don't care. But disabled people have something to offer and we should, you know, open up the space for them to do that. Hi, thank you. I'm Serena Ovens, the CEO of the Physical Disability Council of New South Wales. I have a question, again, that's slightly broader than the NDIS um, and around something that you brought up, Tom, around um, the, the changes that are happening because of the NDIS as a consequence of um, most governments deciding that the NDIS is the be-all and end-all for um, anyone in the community, per se, and anything else that needs to happen. Um, we too are seeing our governments uh, refusing to fund services like advocacy services, community groups, not-for-profits that support everybody, whether they're in the NDIS or not. How have you managed to overcome or, um, I guess, educate the government on the need for these services to remain both inside and outside of the NDIS? Um, I mean, you know, obviously, we don't. We have personalisation and personal budgets, but I mean, it, you know, we've had a global financial crisis. We've had a constraints. So we've had right-wing governments. So I can't pretend that organisations haven't been cut left, right, and centre. Um, but I think that yeah, NDIS, as I understand it, reaches is it ten percent of um, disabled people. Yep. Um, so you know, the, the, that leaves ninety percent of disabled people who neither get money nor I'm not necessarily saying they should get money, but they certainly need advocacy. 
and they certainly need access and they certainly need services of all sorts of, of kinds um, which are not covered by you know, NDIS and that's the case in Britain. I no longer get personal assistance because I don't need it. I, my impairment is, uh, I've done a lot of physiotherapy, all the rest of it. I don't need a personal assistant but I do need the same access rights as everybody else. And we have got the Equality Act, we have a non-discriminatory you know, approach. I can't remember, you had a pretty rubbish act back in the day. <laughs> I can't remember whether we it's been improved. It. Same rubbishy yeah, act. Right. Well, you had a crappy act and <laughs> you've got crappy outcomes. Go figure. Um, you know, vote for a government that will give you a better act. Yeah, I mean, we it got it early. Yeah, but it was given to you, not campaigned for. Um, yeah, it was, it was a handout, wasn't it, really? And it didn't do, it didn't do what it said on the, on the tin. It, it's, it's called a Disability Discrimination Act, but it's not that thing. And I, you know, it'd be outrageous if uh, you know, uh, indigenous people were, I know there's all sorts of problems, but it'd be outrageous if the government didn't at least pay you know, uh, uh, appropriate legislative support to that or to women or to other minorities. So how the hell can they do that to disabled people? We have an Equality Act, there are 14 uh, different equality dimensions, and it's illegal to discriminate. Um, and I'm not saying that Britain has it perfect, it does not. Um, but we have very good access and you know, we take a lot of things for granted, um, which I'm afraid you don't yet have that opportunity to, to be complacent about. And you're going to complain about this, but it's true. In terms of legal structure, the Act is fine. Okay, it's the judicial right. interpretation. Yep. Australian judges use broad and purposive for their speeches and narrow and technical for their judgments. Do you have a duty to uh -huh. promote equality? Yes. And that's not uphold? Depends. Depends on which day, which court. Well, either your judges uh -huh. are turkeys or your act is rubbish. I don't know. I'm, you're the lawyer. But, I, yeah, I don't... No, there's a propensity in Australia for the judiciary to be narrow and technical. Mm. And they tie themselves in absolute knots, making completely unfathomable judgments to meet very technical criteria that they try to read into the Act. Yeah, yeah. The Act is fine. Okay, get some disabled lawyers. Okay. Judges. Um, I am not going to become a litigator just to sue you, Tom. <laughs> Damn. I thought I had you there. Might be. <laughs> okay, well, we had a couple of questions, please. I think Scott and we have a gentleman in the middle of the back row there. Good evening. It's Scott Avery from the First People's Disability Network. Um, we've not long back from some uh, very remote Aboriginal communities um, and the NDAs had been there and they'd allocated, um, they were saying they were getting $50,000 packages, so notional expenditure, which they couldn't spend because <laughs> there were no services there. Um, what they were saying they wanted was food because families are starving and they needed blankets because they're homeless and the poverty. But um, it was deemed not to be reasonable and necessary, which is another concept that's used to qualify choice and control. So my question is, if something like the NDIS, which is put up as a beacon of a social policy in Australia, can't find itself within its regulations and rules to put food on the table of yeah. uh, starving families, ha has it really lost its sense of purpose? I think that's, that's an inherent difficulty that that um, the sector and the Act has at the moment to 
um, it distinguishes very starkly between what is a, a um, what is a, a need arising because of disability and what's uh, what's um, and what is an ordinary need as a person. And until it can reconcile those things in Aboriginal communities, I think we will get those anomalies that it can't address what's a community need. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I haven't got a solution to that, Scott. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's very, very real that they, 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 a lot of the anomalies that we're seeing are because they can't um, yet attribute what's what's the responsibility because of your disability and what's your responsibility as a person or your need as a person it's it's a hard one i mean in terms of the i'm i can't comment scott because I, I i don't have the not necessary knowledge of of uh, people uh, the situation of, of of aboriginal people but your other points about the lack of services is interesting, isn't it? Because I understand what you're saying about a rural and remote area, but if the Act transfers money to a group of people who need services, then in theory at least, if that was a, you know, assured long-term investment for a group of people to get a particular service, I would hope that that would lever a supplier to come and offer it. And that's at least market theory. But if there are enough people who have a clear service need, um, I guess the reason that doesn't happen is because it's not predictable and guaranteed and ongoing. And so maybe, therefore, what is needed in terms of the NDIA or whatever is to be able to underwrite that offer. Yeah. And that it's not just about individuals, but it's also to say, look, here is a community, maybe a remote community, but in this square, square kilometre area there is a need for this thing and there are a number of people who are funded for that thing and therefore aggregate that that should enable a market entrant to offer that thing and that if we could guarantee it for say five years or preferably longer it would be worth the while of somebody or some group to move to that region and deliver that thing and that's how the market is meant to work but if it's temporary, if it's uncertain, if you can't guarantee it'll be there next year, of course, nobody's going to be stupid enough to even try. But maybe the NDIA needs to think about remote and, and whatever it was, thin markets, and how it can actually achieve services for the people that need them, which is presumably what it's there for in the first place. Um, on public transport access, uh, there's a real problem in, in New South Wales with uh, the retrofitting of, of train stations with uh, disability access uh, lifts. Um, sh really, shouldn't it be completely compulsory that, that the government has to uh, either provide uh, a lift at, um, uh, an automated lift at every uh, station um, or um, accommodate um, people's needs with uh, some kind of uh, a shuttle bus a, a sort of like a, a substitute shuttle bus. I actually don't know what's in the transport standards as far as um, making all stations, but they're, they're certainly... Uh, do you know, Rosemary, what's in the transport standards? The thing with the standards is uh, they're, in a, they're in a negotiated process. Yeah. So the standards um, that were negotiated um, between government, industry and the sector 
Uh, there's a 30-year rollover in terms of um, rail transport, so that's rolling stock, um, and there is capacity for them to roll out on a targeted time frame um, stations yeah. and access for stations and stuff like that. So they've got a long, long buy-in period. I think it was 20 years for the physical mm. infrastructure. The biggest problem, the biggest problem is that it's an individual complaint system, the standards process. There was no, there was an opportunity for the transport standards to be connected with licensing for public trans transport. The most successful aspect of the, trans the standards process in Australia has been with the access to premises standards because an element of it was in embedded into the Building Code of Australia. The Building Code of Australia is mandatory. So for those elements of the access to premises standards that are in the Building Code of Australia, they get met. They're mandatory. They happen. We could have done that because every public transport system in Australia has to be licensed, whether it's you know, yeah. run by state governments, whether it's run privately. We had the opportunity. We didn't do it. Um, so what you're left with is an individual complaints mechanism where the individual, the onus is on the individual to lodge a claim for a breach of the standards. So whether it was a 20-year time frame they had or whether it was an immediate obligation, you still rely on individuals bringing a breach of the standards complaint for there to be action taken. So, yeah. you know, they weigh up the risk of having a, a complaint lodged. And as I said before, we've got a judiciary that has you know, bent over backwards in trying to narrow the act for technical purposes, yeah. generally about having clear distinctions between indirect and direct discrimination. Thank, thank you. And I think that um, to the gentleman up the back, that 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 is the explanation as to why the, the rollout period seems to extend ad infinitum. Um, so there are a number of constraints on that. And I think um, with, with buses, they've got till 2020. Ah, oh, winching Aussies. It really is winching Aussies. I can get on any bus. I can get on any taxi. I can get on any train in the UK. You can get on any licensed hackney cab. Yes, you can. You can't go in well, mini cabs. I can. Well, anyway, where, this is... This There's is, a ramp. They're all ramps. Black cabs. This is what we call an aspirational target. But, and yeah, it's a lot better. It. It's a lot better. It's a lot yeah. better. And the same with the United States. It's a lot and, better. So you've got two um, very different codes and you've got a much better outcome. So we've got just one final question. So someone... Um, who was unable to attend the event due to health restrictions has had a question they wish to have asked. So um, the person asks, uh, I have severe anxiety and depression. I also have panic attacks. As one of my triggers for the anxiety and panic attacks is phone discussions, I am unfortunately over overly aware that hospitals and other health organisations refuse to provide any other alternative form of contact. As a result, I cannot access services. This is obviously discrimination based on my disability and access inequity issue. 
Who can I contact to get support to fight this, to get an alternative contact option and access to medical support for my illness? So this is a person who can't present in person, can't, can't undertake a yeah. phone interview. It sounds like they need an, some, an advocate working with them to try and bridge that yeah. gap. Because if they can't go to the people or speak to the people or write to the people, all they've got is a person to do it with yeah. them. And that's a, you know, that's a reasonable accommodation. So it's, it's, it's a cliff, um, but I think, yeah, that would have to be the NDIS may be able to, um, would be able to put in their package that a person would come to the house. Who knows? I'm sorry I can't no, solve that's okay. that problem. Thank you. We, we I imagine you have community psychiatric nurses who would presumably be able to do a domiciliary visit, and yeah. I'd hope, and talk We to have them. hospital in the home, yeah. which is yeah. that alternative yeah i'm afraid now we're going to have to draw it to a close i know we just feel like the conversation's just started but can i can i thank very much sue thank you thank very you. much sue and can i thank tom very much also uh, our colleagues at um sydney ideas also and yourselves as the audience participation thank you very much Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.